the mercy of God is that attribute which we, the fallen, sinful race of Adam, stand in greatest need of, and God has been pleased according to our needs more gloriously to manifest this attribute than any other. The wonders of divine grace are the greatest of all wonders. The wonders of divine power and wisdom in the making of this great world are marvelous. Other wonders of His justice in punishing sin are wonderful. Many wonderful things have happened since the creation of the world. But none like the wonders of grace. Grace, grace is the sound that the gospel rings with. Grace, grace will be that shout which will ring in heaven forever. And perhaps what the angels sang at the birth of Christ. Of God's good will towards men. The highest theme that ever they entered upon. Well, these are the words of the great 18th century American Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards in one of many, many sermons he preached on the subject of the grace and mercy of God. And and he preached these countless appeals for the gospel of Christ well balanced with the need for mercy and, and grace and understanding the full picture of what God is doing in the world. And in one encouraging sermon called The Eternity of Hell's Torment. He makes a stunning theological point. Now, to build up to this point, he rightly assesses that humanity can't stomach the idea of an eternal hell. We just can't take it. An eternity of punishment, something we can't grasp. And we don't like this because our depraved hearts hate to believe in punishment for sin and hate this because mankind naturally diminishes and minimizes sin but here's edward's stunning point he says this quote if we saw a proportion between the evil of sin and eternal punishment that is if we saw something in wicked men that should appear as hateful to us as eternal misery appears dreadful something that should as much stir up indignation and detestation as eternal misery does terror All objections against this doctrine would vanish at once. Now, if you're having trouble understanding an 18th century communication, let me translate that for you. What Edward Edward says is, if you could see the abject wickedness of sin at exactly the same level that you dread and fear hell, you would now believe in an eternity in hell as being a just punishment for sinners. Now, in our previous message, hopefully you were convinced of your need for Christ. That was my goal. That was my hope. That as a Christian, you can look back and see the enormity of your sin and how desperate you were for a Savior from that sin. But tonight, as we continue looking at the glorious gospel and how John 18, 19, and 20 really enumerates these key principles of the gospel, tonight we address a different issue, and that is the issue of insecurity or perhaps uncertainty that Christ's payment for your sin maybe wasn't enough. Was it enough? Was the payment of Christ enough to cover every one of my sins? Now, if I convinced you that your sin made you need Christ, tonight it's my hope to convince you that the death of Christ is sufficient to fully satisfy the wrath of God against your sin to render you complete and whole and spiritually prepared to stand before God. Now, so far as we've been putting together a gospel presentation for the, from the principles here embedded in the very text of John 18 through 20, 
This is what we have so far. Here's our gospel presentation. Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his father's plan for suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. And that's where we've gotten to so far. And so this evening, we'd like to add to that. Thus, you need the payment for your sin Christ offers you. You need the payment for your sin Christ offers. And we find this principle in our text for this evening, which is John 18, verses 28 through 32. John 18, 28 through 32. And what I want to do this evening, very simply, is show you two guarantees Two guarantees that the death of Christ was sufficient to pay for your sin. And my hope and my prayer is that this will cause great thankfulness and gratitude in your own hearts. And here are the two guarantees. They're very simple. I'll give them to you up front. The first guarantee is God's sovereignty. And the second guarantee is God's solution. God's sovereignty and God's solution. So let's look first at the first guarantee, God's sovereignty. I think we have to start with a definition. What is the sovereignty of God? Well, the sovereignty of God speaks of God's inherent right to do anything he decides to do. And his all-powerful nature ensures that he is able to carry out all that he decides to do. And so God's sovereignty is his right and his power to do all that he decides. I'll just give you an example, although there are many, many in Scripture, but this is one of my favorites. In the 8th century A.D., God told Israel that he would raise up Assyria to be the rod of his anger against his rebellious people. He says in Isaiah 10, verse 6, Against a godless nation I send him, meaning against Israel, Assyria is being sent. And against the people of my wrath I command him. But then God says to Assyria, and this is my paraphrase, How dare you touch my chosen people? In fact, in Isaiah 10, verse 12, God says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, meaning the work of wrath, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And then further in Isaiah 10, 16, Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. Now, how did that happen? Well, in 612 B.C., a coalition led by the Babylonians, including the Persians, Medes, and Scythians, they captured and they burned the Assyrian capital of Nineveh and so completely decimated Nineveh Nineveh and other cities in the Assyrian Empire that by 609 B.C., the Assyrian Empire ceased to exist. Two generations later, Nineveh and other cities were completely covered by sand. They were buried. In fact, Nineveh wasn't found again for 2,400 years in about 1820. But God had already planned this. He said this through the prophet Isaiah. He also said it through Nahum, much closer to the event. The minor prophet uh, Nahum received an oracle from God that takes two full chapters to describe the utter and complete devastation of Nineveh and all of Assyria and it really it reads like a description of the end of the world in Nahum chapters 2 and 3 God gave the prophet Nahum this word about 620 BC just eight years before the destruction of at the time the most powerful city in the world that's just one example 
of the sovereignty of God, having the right and the power to do all that he pleases. And so it shouldn't surprise us in the least that it's the sovereignty of God leading and directing every single event in our text this morning, or this evening rather, orchestrating everything for a, a very specific outcome. And that outcome is the death of Christ on a cross. Now, Jesus had appeared first to Annas, the high priest emeritus and the father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas. And in all likelihood, this allowed Caiaphas time to get the Sanhedrin, the, the Jerusalem council, to get them together and gathered early in the morning and to get some false witnesses against Jesus also. So Annas, the high priest emeritus, is buying time. Now, Jesus was presented at three Jewish trials and three Roman trials, all within about an eight-hour period from the very early, early hours of the morning up until daylight. Now, John has already included the details of the first Jewish trial before Annas and now skips ahead for his purposes to the first Roman trial before Governor Pontius Pilate. But before this first Roman trial, Jesus would be tried two more times by the Jews. And so let's insert that knowledge, that understanding, so we know where we are here. Where we left Christ before, in verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now he's tied up. And he's taken to the house of Caiaphas, the current high priest. And this was an illegal hearing because it was at night, which was not permitted by law. And the purpose was to try to find some legal basis upon which to put Jesus to death. They brought forward two false witnesses to say that Jesus said he was going to destroy the temple. Caiaphas asked Jesus to answer the charges, but Jesus stayed silent. Well, finally, Caiaphas says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now the high priest had basically placed Jesus under a sacred oath and Jesus, by law, had to answer. So he did. And he said way more than Caiaphas was bargaining for. He said, as recorded in Matthew 26, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, at that point, the high priest tore his robes, which, by the way, was illegal to do, according to Leviticus 21, and he declared that Jesus had spoken blasphemy, which was punishable by death. There was no evidence or witnesses given on behalf of Christ. It was a completely illegal and one-sided trial where the verdict was already decided before Jesus ever arrived. The temple guards and the soldiers began to spit in the face of our Lord. They began to punch him repeatedly with their fists all over his body while Others slapped him and, and beat him with rods. And as they were doing so, Jesus undoubtedly began to collapse under the beating. And they yelled at him, prophesy to us, you Christ, who hit you? So far, Jesus had been tried twice, both illegally. And so now the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council of Jerusalem, waited until sunrise to give some semblance of legality and they gathered together for the official version and quickly arrived at a guilty verdict with an immediate death sentence. All three Jewish trials concluded with the death penalty. And now that brings us to John 18, verse 28. 
Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Did you catch that? Did you see the hypocrisy of the leadership of Israel? They're about to murder their Messiah, and yet they're trying to obey the rules about being ceremonially clean for Passover. They were absolutely deluded concerning their own self-righteousness. And so now they've taken Jesus to, it says in the text here, the governor's headquarters, Greek praetorium. This is the official residence of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And so Pilate accommodates their religious preferences and, and their refusal to come into the praetorium. And we see in verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Well, there's no answer to this question. Well, what accusation can you bring against someone who's sinless? Before Jesus was born, the angel Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. He's holy, he's sinless. Peter, who was with Jesus night and day for three and a half years, long enough to see everything about somebody, he concluded in 1 Peter 2.22, concerning Jesus, quote, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And the writer of Hebrews testified, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there's no answer to the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? So what are the Jews going to say? What will they say? Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They don't give an answer. There isn't a single charge that will stand up in a Roman court of law, particularly to get to the death penalty. So basically what they say is, hey, Pontius, just trust us. He's worthy of death. Don't worry about the details. Just kill him. Well, at first, Pilate acted according to protocol and Roman occupation policy. If they couldn't present evidence of a capital offense, he put it back into their hands. That was policy. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Did you catch that? They could not present a capital offense that would reasonably satisfy a Roman judge, but they had already determined to put him to death. Now, the Romans respected the laws and the traditions of conquered peoples, and in fact, they tried to let life carry on normally. That was just their occupation policy. But they did insist that only a Roman court could carry out the death penalty. And so Pilate isn't seeing the death penalty worthy offense here, and they haven't told him anything, but they plead with him to help them kill him anyway. Now, where does the sovereignty of God come into play in all this? Well, there have already been five attempts to murder Jesus so far. The first one was shortly after his birth. King Herod attempted to find and to murder Jesus by the sword. At the temptation of Christ, Satan attempted to convince Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And then in Nazareth, 
Near the beginning of his ministry in his hometown, the townspeople of Nazareth tried to throw him off a cliff, but he simply passed through their midst. In the third year of his public ministry, Jesus was in the temple in Jerusalem teaching, and he got into a debate with some of the Jews, as recorded in John eight thirty one. And when he told them that, quote, before Abraham was, I am, which is a clear claim to be God, they took up stones to kill him. And then just the previous winter, before our text here at the Feast of Dedication, Jesus was in the temple, and he answered the question with the answer, I and the Father are one. In John 10, verse 22 and following, and again, the Jews tried to stone him to death. So, five attempts on his life, one by sword, two by a fatal fall, and two more by stoning. But not only were these attempts on Jesus' life not God's timing, They weren't God's method. God's method had to be more precise and it had to be more embedded with meaning. God intended Jesus to be sacrificed by one means only, and that is crucifixion. And that's how this entire sovereign orchestration by God was making everything turn out. Look with me at verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. What words had he spoken? Well, in John 3, verse 14, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, meaning crucified. In John 8, verse 28, Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, meaning crucified. And in John 12, 32 and 33, Jesus said, When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, why is this important? Why does that matter? Why does God's sovereignty guarantee that your penalty for sin has been completely paid? Because God's sovereignty is what brought about God's solution. God's solution is the other guarantee that your sin has been completely paid And to understand God's solution, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And the first man and our representative, our human representative, our federal head, Adam. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And of course, we know that Adam did eat. Adam did sin. He did violate God's love and protection and care, and he betrayed his creator. And now the curse of sin was brought to humanity and to the earth and to all the universe. And from that time forward, from Genesis 3 on, the rest of the Bible is concerned with the effects of the curse of sin. And the effects of the curse of sin, in fact, are so far-reaching that there is no part of you or me that is exempt. Let me show you this from Scripture. Your mind is cursed. Your mind is cursed. Titus 1, beginning in verse 15, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Why? Because of their minds, their consciences. Romans 1, beginning in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. How about Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding. Jeremiah 10, 7 and 8. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. A few verses later in Jeremiah ten fourteen, every man is stupid and without knowledge. And so your mind is cursed. Your mouth is cursed. Your mouth is cursed. Psalm 5, verse 9, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And of course, drawing on that same theme, Romans three fourteen, the Apostle Paul says, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, meaning all of mankind. Your mind is cursed. Your mouth is cursed. Your heart is cursed. The inmost self that you possess, your heart is cursed. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, the preacher says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus said, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is all out of the heart. Right before the flood, Genesis 6, 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, you might say, but I can still decide to do the right thing. No, you can't. Your will is cursed also. Your will is cursed. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter two nineteen, They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Listen to this. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. The Apostle Paul said in Titus 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Paul continues in Galatians 4, verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. What's left? What part of you is left? Your desires. Well, I can desire to do the right thing. Nope. Your desires are cursed also. Ephesians 2 verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Proverbs 21.10. The soul of the wicked desires evil. John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. In John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. 
In other words, humanity desires to do what Satan would have them do. Your mind, your mouth, your heart, your will, your desires are cursed. And you might say, okay, well, we'll just help ourselves out. We'll just uncurse ourselves. Jeremiah 13, 23, God asks a rhetorical question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to evil? 1 Samuel 24, 13, out of the wicked comes wickedness. Matthew 7, 18, Jesus said, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Paul said in Romans 8, 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Listen to this. Indeed, it cannot. Listen. You weren't just cursed. You were a curse. You were a curse. Romans 3, 12, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jesus told us in advance that there would be the day when he takes all the unbelievers and says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So if the plan of God for the redemption of mankind is going to work, if payment for sin is going to be sufficient, the payment must match. It has to match in intensity and duration and proportion and in the satisfaction of all. All that entails being a curse before God. And so God's sovereignty has been taking Jesus toward this very moment because Jesus being killed instantly by the sword won't accomplish this plan. The instant death of a fatal fall won't accomplish this plan. And the relatively quick death of stoning won't provide the solution. It must be the cross. It must be the tree of Calvary. Why? Because God said in Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 22, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Listen to this. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Meaning that he's been displayed publicly on the tree for all to see that he is rejected, he's despised, he's forsaken by God for his sin. So this brings us back to this trial. Why would Caiaphas, the high priest, want to put Jesus on a cross? Symbolically, on a tree. It wasn't just to execute him. It was to render him cursed by God. And Caiaphas is thinking, cursed for all eternity. Caiaphas didn't have in mind just to kill Jesus' body, but to curse his soul. But this played right into God's sovereignty and right into God's solution. Because the only way our horrific cursed nature, the fact that we have not only are cursed, but we are a curse, the only way this can be reversed, it's going to have to be paid for by an equal sacrifice. And here's God's solution. Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
So what's the conclusion then? Well, the conclusion is, is that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient to pay for every one of your sins. How do we know this? The Apostle Peter gives this conclusion. He said in 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Forgiveness is completed. Your sin has been cleared. You are no longer cursed. You are no longer a curse because Christ became a curse for you. In his stark and honest sermon, The Eternity of Hell's Torment Again, Jonathan Edwards ends with three exhortations. First, he says, Consider how great and awful a thing eternity is. To suffer extreme torment forever and ever, day and night, from one year to another, from one age to another, and from one thousand ages to another. In pain, in wailing and lamenting, groaning and shrieking and gnashing your teeth with your souls full of dreadful grief. And second, he tells us to consider the fact that you'll have to have certain knowledge that you, quote, never shall be delivered from them to have no hope when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing but shall have no hope of it when you would rejoice if you might but have any relief after you have endured these torments millions of ages but shall have no hope of it. Your souls, which shall have been agitated with the wrath of God all this while, will still exist to bear more wrath. Your bodies, which shall have been burning all this while in these glowing flames, shall not have been consumed. And in typical Edward's style, his third exhortation is one of great hope. He says, quote, You may effectually escape these dreadful and awful torments, be entreated to flee and embrace him who came into the world for the very end of saving sinners from these torments, who has paid, listen to this, the whole debt, who has paid the whole debt due to the divine law. And he goes on to say that yes, God receives glory by the eternal punishment of sinners in hell because it magnifies his justice, magnifies his wrath, magnifies his might. That Edwards believed that God receives more glory in your salvation. Why? Because in hell, the price will never be paid because sin is eternal. But in Christ, justice is completely satisfied actually satisfied. And so Edwards concludes, Therefore, believe in Him. Come to Him. Commit your souls to Him to be saved by Him. In Him you shall be safe from the eternal torments of hell. Nor is that all. But through Him you shall inherit inconceivable blessedness and glory which will be of equal duration with the torments of hell. For as at the last day the wicked shall go away into everlasting punishment, so shall the righteous, those who trust in Christ, go into life eternal. What a fabulous, marvelous hope given to us by the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, We thank you for the word of God which has so clearly convinced us
that the cross of Christ was sufficient to rid us of our cursed nature, to rid us of being a curse as the Lord Jesus Christ became a curse for us. And Lord, now in the midst of this difficult time in which our world is facing, in which our own local church here is facing, we pray for your kindness, we pray for your mercy, we pray for your grace, we pray for your goodness to come upon us. We do trust your sovereign plan. We trust that you know precisely what you're doing and that you have worked all things out for your glory, for our good. And Lord, we would pray for our local body, for the precious believers of Grace Bible Church as they're hunkered down in their homes right now awaiting this crisis to come to an end. We pray that you would shepherd their souls. We pray that they would be encouraged. We pray that they would be delighted with the things of God through the word of God, through the hymns of our faith, through the company of family. Lord, I pray for this great encouragement. I thank you for this medium of live stream and the internet, which allows us to continue preaching the word. And I pray, Lord, that in this coming week, that you would be a great blessing, a comfort and tender hope to all who are among our body. We pray, Lord, that you would bring many to faith in Christ. Even this week, We pray for all the various mediums that you have allowed to continue with social media and the internet and so forth to be a conduit for the gospel of Jesus Christ that many might hear and many might believe and that you would be glorified and honored through this time. And we would pray and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.